thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. stay seated or if you haven't yet grabbed communion and you would like to take communion today there's a table up here and also tables in the back and at the front entrance we're going to take that in the middle of the sermon today so i'd encourage you to grab that now if you do not have it already so this is the uh, the second week of the book of john last week we kind of established that this uh, was written by the apostle john and that his posture and his hope. And one of the things that he had kind of settled in his heart was that Jesus loved him and that Jesus was God. This first section of kind of the verse, first 18 verses, a lot of theologians kind of call this the prologue to the book of the gospel of John. Some argue that this was written shortly after the rest of the book was written. There's not a lot of validity. We can't know for sure, but ultimately we know that John is the author of this. But this section kind of is kind of the, hey, this is what I'm going to cover through the rest of the book. And so a lot of what he says in here, although it's rich and deep and full, we are going to spend more time throughout the rest of the book in the, on these very subjects that he brings up today. Last week, we had established that John believed that Jesus loved him and that he knew that Jesus loved him prior to even Jesus going to the cross, but that he also believed that Jesus was God. And what we don't know is when that settled for him. When did John finally settle on the idea that Jesus was fully God? And that's a very important thing for us to understand because it's the primary point at which he's going to get into in the first five verses of where we are today. A couple things that we have to understand is that is it when did, did John truly settle in his heart that Jesus was God any time before the resurrection? I would argue probably not, although we do see and we will get to talk about, it, and I can't wait, when Peter walks on water and Jesus does that whole thing on the water. At the end of that, the disciples say, truly, you are the Son of God. That's the first time that they worship him as the Son of God. But we don't think it necessarily sticks because at some point, the apostle abandons Jesus just like every other disciple does in the time of need for Jesus. A little context of kind of predominant understandings of this day. This gospel, most scholars believe, is written to help both the Jews and the Gentiles, to help those that were raised of Jewish descent and understanding who God was, and those that didn't. They weren't there. And the two kind of predominant beliefs in that first was kind of the pagan or the Greek philosophy side of things. There, were, there was a belief on them that there were many gods, and every god had to be worshipped, and they had temples for them, and they were in this spot. Another like predominant belief was that that matter was inherently evil, but spirit was good. And so they tried to separate those two things out. But ultimately, they understood at, at this point that there were gods and all kinds of different gods in the, on the Greek side, and that this is something that, that John is trying to establish, that, hey, there's one God, and this one God is, is three parts, and Jesus is God. And that's what he's trying to establish there. The second predominant belief were the Jews of this day. The Jews that were in combat, if you spent any time in the Gospels with Jesus and his teaching, the Jews that believed and, and thought and understood that God is a one God, there is one God, and that is him, and he is, he is a big God, and he's a God at a distance, and he's a God that is, ultimately, we as his people, as the Jews, what they would feel is that we have failed. 
We failed over and over and over again. We have failed God because we cannot in any way keep up with him. And so there was a sacrificial system, and that was the kind of the, the perpetual thing of, okay, this is what we're going to do to get close to God, but ultimately always feeling that distance. What both kind of beliefs believed as a whole, like kind of one of those things that was across kind of the, the gamut of all those beliefs was that they understood and believed that God or gods, depending upon their belief, were powerful and meant to be worshiped, meant to be prostrated before, not meant to walk hand in hand with us, not meant to be close to us. They both believed that God was powerful. The, the Jews believed God was powerful and he's meant to be feared and he's meant to be worshiped, but ultimately he is he is a God that is, is, is not touchable. In fact, anytime anyone comes in place or contact with, that, with God in the Bible, what do they do? They prostrate themselves. Even Isaiah, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. Everyone sees the fact that they are not worthy to be near there. The same thing with the Gentiles, the pagans, they believe that these gods were meant to be worshiped. And, and maybe they weren't as untouchable as God was to Judaism. But what both people believed is they meant that their livelihood, the value of their life, the, the benefit with their life, the blessing that they had was based on our obedience and or submission to these gods or God. This is something that all of them kind of understood. This whole idea there is no God and all that stuff, that's a way later in timeline view. This back then, everyone believed there was some kind of God. They were worthy of, of being worshiped. If it was a temple God for, for fertility, for the pagans, that's great. If it was God himself, but no one was in this like, there is no God or there are no gods. That was not a prevalent belief in this time. Again, it's important for us to understand that. But to all of these people, there was a distance between their God, gods, and themselves. There was a distance, a, a felt, understandable, okay with distance between them. And that's a view that's in here. And, and the Apostle John, like we said last week, old man John's coming in. He's trying to help the Jews and the Gentiles alike understand that God is, is not as distant as you think he is. And we see that not just in in Scripture, but we see that in the person of Jesus. And that's what he's trying to establish with us. So the beginning is kind of known as this prologue, and the first five verses establish that Jesus is fully God. In fact, there's really no way to read these, even in, in the Greek, in any other way. There's really no way to read these without understanding that what he is saying right here is Jesus is fully God. We'll get there in just a second. But before we do that, and I couldn't come up with a good analogy earlier in the first service, and I don't have one yet, the issue we're going to have with this is I'm going to try and convince you. John is trying to convince you that Jesus is God, and we're doing it based on this book. So if you don't believe there's any validity to this book, you believe that this is just an archaic letters that have that been doctored by man, you don't see this as the infallible word of God, that, that, that everything that was written in here was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. You don't see those things. I'm trying to prove to you something that you're like, I, that's great, it's based on this. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter because I don't believe in this. And so at the end of the day, really, whether you've been in church for a long time or you're new or you're just showing up for the first time, you don't even know what Jesus believes, our understanding of who God is is, is primarily from this book. We, he, will, he will display himself in other ways, but our understanding of who God is and what we are to do and how we are to live is primarily in this book. And that's an important thing for us to reconcile. So if you're here and you don't believe in God, you don't know those things, your, your first hurdle is going to be one of these things right here. It's going to be one of the, the, whether or not the scripture is valuable. If you've been here for a long time, like, yeah, yeah, I believe that, I believe that. Then let me ask this question to all of you that have been following God for a long time. Is your life aligned to the fact that you believe this? 
And see, the reason why I ask that question, it's very important for us to understand this, because if Jesus is God, that means he's not just our homeboy, it means he's our God, so we have to, we have to recognize that. But if you right now are living contrary to what God's word says in any aspect of here, and I'm sure all of us are at point, but if you're doing so willfully, what you're saying is this is not my authority. And if this is not your authority, then me establishing up here and saying, hey, this is who God is and this is our authority is going to go nowhere. It's going to fall in deaf ears. So if you right now are living contrary to the way scripture commands you to live in this word, I mean, willful, obvious understanding. Maybe some of you are like, well, I haven't read every word yet. Okay, great. That's okay. But if you've come to a scripture and it says, live this way, and you choose to live this way contrary to it, you're establishing that it's not your authority. And it's going to be really hard. And what will happen is when we do that, things like Jesus being our God all of a sudden really kind of falls on a little bit weaker or, or, or hardened soil. And so that's one thing that we have to establish and understand. If you, this is not going to be the day where I'm going to spend a bunch of time talking about the Word of God and all those things, although we'll be talking about the Word of God in a different way. I would encourage you, if you're like, man, I don't know, I want to understand more about Scripture, reach out to me. I'd love to get together, talk to you about this. I do not presume to know all of it, but I can point you to a lot of really great resources and individuals that can help in that. So that being said, John chapter 1, verse 1, we're finally in the book of John, guys. Here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, there's a lot of things happening in here in just this first verse. When he says, in the beginning was the word, we have to understand for us right now, every Jewish person heard that and went right back to what in beginning, in the beginning God created. That's the first spot that they would have gone. It's, it's a, it would have brought all their minds right there. Okay, in the beginning, nothing existed except for God. And, and in the beginning was the word. Now, what is the word? Logos is the Greek word that we use. It's where we get logic from. This word is a word that to the Greeks was kind of like the meaning of life, depending upon where they were, or, or reasoning, or this was kind of their, their value of finding things. To the Jews, this was an understanding, like God speaks. God spoke creation into existence. They knew all along the way, over and over again, from prophet after prophet after prophet, the, wor the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. They knew that, that the word meant that it was salvation or a revelation that came from God. That's what the word was. So he uses one word to pull in both groups and then replaces it and does something drastically different and beautiful with it. He ties it to the person of Jesus Christ. And we get that in verse 14. We'll be there later on in a couple weeks. But he says that the word became flesh in the flesh, and this is Jesus who we're talking about. So when he says, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was Jesus. It's the first thing he's saying. He's saying, at the very beginning was Jesus. So now every single Jewish person that heard that goes, oh, in the beginning, Jesus, wait, 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 like the beginning, the beginning, like in the beginning, the world was created. It takes them all the way back to there. And for the, the Greek philosophy minds, they're like going, wait, we've been, we've been establishing what we found is as we've studied and we've worked and we've looked, nothing really brings out the meaning of life. And it takes something outside of this world to bring about the meaning of life. And, G and John says, brilliantly by, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the word is Jesus. And that's why you can find the meaning of life because he is not of this world. He is not created. He was in the beginning. And so in one small short sentence that we look at and go, okay, yeah, that's neat. 
He brings both of the people of his audience and puts them back and says that Jesus, now we have to establish this, settle this. Jesus was in the beginning. When the heavens and the earth were created, Jesus was there. That has to be established. Jesus was there. And every single person that was Jewish knew that if you were created, you weren't God. But if you were creator or you weren't created, then you were God. And so all of a sudden now he's saying, in the beginning, when things happened, all those things, Jesus was there. And then he goes on and says, and the word and Jesus was with God. Now this brings out another issue and kind of ties in for all of us is that, okay, wait a second. Jesus was, was there in the beginning and then Jesus is now with God, this word harmony, face to face with God. It's a very deep fellowship. It's not just a, hey, hanging out, like let's go do something together. It's like face to face with each other. All of a sudden we have to establish that now Jesus, the word, is sitting in the beginning face to face with God. That in and of itself, remember what everyone believed about being face to face with God. Jesus, face to face with God, okay? And then he goes on and says, and in just case this was going to be a little bit harder to understand, and the word, and Jesus was God. And Jesus was God. So not only was he there in the beginning, not only is he face to face, but also it's like now he is God. He was God. And this brings up what we know as the Trinity. This is what this brings up. Our understanding that God is one, but he has three parts. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is one of those moments where everyone's like, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus is face to face, which the only way Jesus could really be face to face is if he is God and Jesus is God. This is, this is one of those moments where in one verse, John just lays out in front of everyone, this is what it means. Jesus is God. He's with God. He's in the presence of God. He's in union with God. God is eternal. He's in relationship with God. And he is, he's in perfect harmony with God. And he is God. That's what he says in one verse. One short verse. That's what he establishes, that God, that Jesus is eternal. He's preexistent. He is not, he is outside of time. He's face to face with God. He's not separated. He's not, he's not a part of God. He is God. And in this one sentence, it took all of those common beliefs for every single person that was kind of re, like trying to work its way into the early church and people were wrestling with, and it just kind of like bulldozes it and says, this is what the truth is. And then he goes on in verse two and says, he was in the beginning with God. That's kind of just a reiteration of what he was saying at first. Hey, he was in the beginning with God. He just repeats what he's already established, that Jesus is preexistence, Jesus is eternal, Jesus is in the face with the Lord, and Jesus is God. And in the beginning, just, he, he, is, he was there. He's been there since the beginning. And then to go one step further in verse 3, he says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's saying the same thing with a negative and a positive. All things were made through him, and there wasn't a single thing that was made that, <laughs> that wasn't made through him. He's saying the same thing. All things were made through him. Again, to us, we hear that and we're like, yeah, we've been taught that Bible school. That's great, everything. To them, they're going, wait, 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 wait. If you made everything and you are all things, then there's no way for me to argue that you aren't God. Because only God makes all things. This is what he's establishing. He's saying, like, it just comes out hot. And, and don't worry, all of these things, in case you're like, wow, we're moving through this fairly quickly. All of these things we're gonna hit over and over and over again through the Gospel of John. He comes back and flushes each of these things out. 
We see this in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. He is speaking of Jesus here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth. By Jesus, all things, heavens and earth, all things were created by Jesus. Whether visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God, not part, not half. There's been a lot of other religions that have tried to undo this and say that he's saying he's not was God, he was divine. Trying to take a word that has really no, no place being there in the original writing. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the foundation of our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, to submit our life, is that Jesus isn't just a man, Jesus is God. It's interesting, if you look at all of the other world religions out there, they don't try to say that Jesus didn't exist. There's just too much history to put him on the earth. But this is the one area that they try to attack. They try to lower him to a prophet. They try to lower him to just a really good man. Some religions believe he's the brother to Lucifer and other people, like all kinds of different things where they try to undo Jesus face-to-face with God before time existed. Look, we, we see this happen in the creation. We see, the, we see all parts of the Trinity taking part in the creation. We see the Holy Spirit moving about across the deeps, bringing about light. We see God doing it. We, say, we see him saying, let us make, let us make in this way. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all active in the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus gets baptized, comes out, God speaks from above, right? That Morgan Freeman voice, this is my son, right? Who I'm well pleased with. And the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends, all on scene at the exact same time individual parts, yet one and all God. If you're sitting here going, I just can't understand that, it's okay. You're not God. We won't fully understand that. We don't know what it means to be fully God and fully man, but Jesus does. But it's important that we establish that he is fully and fully. Part doesn't do it, and we'll talk about that as we go on. He says in here, verse 4, he says, In him, in Jesus, in the Word, in the Logos, was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, this word life would have made sense in context with him saying in the beginning, it would have made sense for it to be used this one Greek word that meant physical life. Because then it would have kept every single person, every single Jewish person going, oh, okay, he's just recounting the, the, the creation order. Because obviously that's where life came in. Physical life came in and light came into darkness because that's where it goes into verse 5. It makes sense, except for he, the problem is he uses the word for spiritual life here. He uses the word that brings about spiritual life. It's a totally different Greek word used purposely here to say that in Jesus is your spiritual life. But in Jesus, we also know, is our physical life because he was there in the beginning. 
And Colossians says that everything was made through him. That means you and me, we were made by Jesus, knit together in our mother's wombs, created for a purpose, to do good works beforehand. This is all in Scripture. He knows you. He's made you. But he also, in him, is life. And not life like physical breathing life that all of us are trying to do right now, but life, spiritual life, life that goes on beyond the physical existence ourselves. In him is life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some translations in that last verse say um, understand it or comprehend it. Either really makes sense, but ultimately the point is that the darkness cannot comprehend without light of Jesus, and it cannot overcome the light of Jesus. So either is true. But what is he saying here? He's saying life and light. It's the same thing. Like my life in light is going to be this. My, the light of men is the life that's in me from Jesus Christ. We're going to talk a lot about light very, actually very quickly in this book. But he's saying ultimately in Jesus is life. In Jesus is life. And the light that you have and the light that you experience and the, the life that you live, it comes through Jesus. The Bible also teaches that Jesus is God by showing us that he has all of God's attributes. Just to, just to lay out a few here, we see in the scriptures, Matthew 16, 21, Luke 11, 17, and John 4, 29, I'm going to rip through these, sorry, um, that he knows everything, that Jesus knows everything, an attribute that is, is attributed to God. God is all-knowing, Jesus is all-knowing. Um, we see in Matthew 18 and Matthew 28, Acts 18 as well, that he's everywhere, that Jesus is everywhere, and that, that's an attribute omnipresent. God is everywhere at every time. Jesus is as well. We see that he has all power, Matthew chapter 8 and 28, and John and Luke, a few other, and Revelation, a bunch of other ones. We see that he depends on nothing outside of himself for life. That's here in verse 4, and ultimately 14, and as well as chapter 8. We see that he rules over everything. Revelations and Matthew both talk about this. These are all attributes that go to God, and these are spoken of Jesus never began to exist and never will cease to exist, that he's our creator. In other words, everything that God is, Jesus is. And that's important for us to understand. Why? Why is it so important that God, that Jesus is God? Why does it matter that he is God? Because of what we believe for salvation. Remember, if you go back to what I was saying at the beginning, the, the salvation system before Jesus was the sacrificial system that was set in place through, through the covenant of Mosaic law and all these other things, right? We have all this information that where I sinned, I got to go slaughter an animal, spill the blood at the temple, let the priest do this, and that would atone for my sins. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the holy of holy places, right? He would do it for all of the people of Israel. They tied a rope to him just in case he had been sinful when he entered or did something wrong and died in there and they could pull him out. This is the distance that everyone felt with God. Why is it important that he is God? Because Jesus' death was an acceptable sacrifice for sin. And if he was just a man, he's just another one that died to the Romans through crucifixion. One could maybe argue that he died for his own sins, although he had no sins. But if he's not God... How is he the perfect sacrifice? See, he lived a lot, human life without sin. I cannot wait to get into incarnation, Jesus putting on flesh. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But he did not inherit a sin nature because he did not have a human father. His father was God. 
And so Jesus did not inherit the sin nature, and then he walked this world without sin. Why is it important that he's God? Because only God could sustain the wrath of God for every other person in the world. Think about it. If it was just a good person, then the lamb that was sacrificed every year to atone for the Israelites was enough. But because he's God, he's able to sustain the entirety of wrath due for every sin of every person on this world and pay it to its fullest. Hebrews 10, 12 says it this way, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Nobody but God could fulfill all the requirements of covering the whole world for their sins. And scholar says it this way, so that by the power of Jesus' divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. This is what he does. This is why it's so important for us to see Jesus as God. We're going to spend a bunch of time through the story of his life where we'll see over and over again why he claims to be God. Jesus takes the name I am at one point, which people pick up stones to throw at him. Jesus has no problem taking the name of God. Only, only a crazy person would do that or God. It doesn't make sense for him to make those declarations if he wasn't God. It doesn't make sense for him to die on the cross if he isn't going to do something with it. Just another death. See, I think for a lot of us, this is lost on us a little bit. And I think that's just because of timing or because we've just maybe spent too much time in the church. But I think we've lost sight of something really, really, really powerful. Do you remember that John was a Jew? The Apostle John was Jewish. And so he, he'd spent his life understanding the sacrificial system. He'd spent his life feeling the separation from God. He'd spent his life feeling like he's just never going to be good enough. And yet, like we established last week, he was the man that knew that Jesus loved him. He knew that before Jesus even went to the cross. He knew that Jesus loved him. But I think it's lost on us because in a lot of ways, John writing this to establish something else is really, really powerful. And I want to just for a second kind of go there. Have you guys, has anyone ever met a famous person, like a really famous person? Like show of hands if you've met a famous person. Like met, not like I saw him in passing, right? Like no, like met. You ever met a famous person? Okay. Have you, like, let's be honest. Is there any famous person you're like, oh, I would love to meet them? Like, does anyone have that feeling? Raise your hand if that's the case. You're like, I would love to meet that famous person, history, whatever else. Okay. Most of the time when it comes to famous people, we tend to kind of like fan club geek out, right? We kind of like, oh my goodness, this is a famous person, right? Let me tell you a story about one time I met a famous person. I was at a, I was at a church conference and we, the church, we had bought a bunch of uh, tickets, and so we had opportunities to go and eat lunches with these different big-time speakers and authors. And so I was sitting in this room with this big-time author that was, and speaker that was this pastor that was going to speak at just this lunch with a small group of people. And I'm at the table, and we're all just kind of eating and chatting. A bunch of people there. I was like, I don't know, room about 20, 30 people. And I'm sitting there talking at this table, and we're having all sorts of conversations. And I, at one point, bring out this, like, you know, I have this weird issue with, like, Christian famous people. Like, I feel, I, feel we, I feel like it's the opposite of humility. It feels weird to be like, oh, man, we're meeting a famous person, but that we also recognize their goodness. I'm just rambling, guys, okay? Just rambling, 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 you know, 
like I tend to do from time to time. And um, going on and on. And finally, after we're kind of finishing eating, we're kind of in this moment, and I, we had a bunch of other conversations. We're laughing. And then it was like, oh, yeah, what, what church are you part of? And so they started asking, oh, we're part of this church and this. And I was like, hey, what, what church are you at? And this guy's sitting across from me the whole time. It's like, oh, I'm at this church. And I was like, oh, cool, like the church that the speaker is? He's like, what's your name? He's like, oh, you're the speaker. I've been talking the whole time to the speaker that was supposed to be here. I'd been eating lunch. I had no idea. This author and everyone was sitting in front of me. And it wasn't like in that moment that I was like, <gasps> can I have your autograph? No, I was literally going, oh my goodness, what stupid things did I say, right? Like instantly just like, oh, I can't believe I said this in front of him. What an idiot. Like, ah, whatever. Move on. Um, that's how we are with famous people. We, we overthink what we said. We kind of get a little giddy, you know, like, oh, like fan club. Go to any musical concert of any artist and watch people like freak out about their artists that are playing. Here's the thing, that, that had to have ended for John at some point. Like, he spent his life walking with Jesus, like, and I mean, we know from Scripture that, like, Jesus would do something, and all of a sudden, he'd be like, whoa, like, he was probably always amazed for him. But the instant, and I don't know when it was that John finally established that Jesus was God. Could you imagine the conversations he was playing back through his head? He's like, oh, man, oh, man, this was God. I put my head on God's chest at the dinner, I was like right next to him. I should have been on my face before him. I walked to 7-Eleven with him. I got him that coffee that one time. I made that, dork, that dorky joke. Like whatever it was, I bet he had all kinds of moments where he was like, this was God. I was walking with God. I was hand in hand with God. I was conversating with God. I would make crude jokes at the fireplace around God. Oh man, I don't know what to do. And I bet he just geeked out for a long time, recounting conversation after conversation after conversation with God. And in a moment, everything that John had felt his whole life didn't just get shattered because he was told that the veil was torn in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and that life came through the resurrection. He realized that God, omnipresent, all-powerful, sovereign God, holding the atoms inside of my body together and all of yours at the exact same time, that God was eating eggs with him over fireplace in the morning. That God was having conversation after conversation with him. I wonder how many times he thought, why didn't Jesus just interrupt me on that point? I was sitting there talking and rambling and he could have just told me my thoughts and figured it out. He's God, he knows everything. That God walked with me. That God, think about this. John is having to recount all of these things. God put himself inside the womb of a woman who he created only to be fully reliant on her for his livelihood. God, perfectly living out this life in incarnation. We will get there in a little bit, but think about it this way. Jesus was fully man. That's where we'll go to. That's where this text goes afterwards. It's important that both pieces are there. But he was fully God in the sense that he could have at any moment done whatever God can do <laughs> to fix any situation, and he had to abstain from using that power. I know if I had that power, there'd be a lot of times where someone was rambling on, I'd be like, okay, I got your point, done. Like, just, let's just end this conversation. There's a lot of times that he had to do, and Jesus not only had to ex feel and experience all the temptations that we, did, we had while they compounded because he never succumbed to them, he also had to, the entire time, hold back, withdraw, not use his God 
card on any situation he could have. This is God walking with John. Jesus is God. He's all-powerful, which is so wonderful because if he wasn't, he couldn't have taken all of our sins. If he wasn't, he would have overcome death and walked out of the grave. Jesus is God. John got to laugh with him. Got to cry with him. Think about this. A Jewish man that had come to the very difficult understanding that he could now stand in the presence of God. One that was trying to understand that he was no longer in need of a sacrifice, no longer needing to wonder if he is right standing with God. All he had to do is say, I have been with God. I have walked with God. Will you walk too? And that's what he's offering here. He's saying, look, you can choose to disagree with me if you want to, but if you don't see Jesus as God, you're going to miss the whole entirety of what the good news really is in the gospel. If you want to fight that and you want to run from that, you want to question away the stuff, go right ahead, but you're going to have to reconcile at some point. At some point, you're going to have to confront the fact that everything in this world, no matter how much knowledge and wisdom and school and money and everything else you put your hope in, all of it will fall short because the only thing that will bring hope is not of this world, and that's Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus being God is for us. It's interesting, when Jesus was getting ready to institute the Lord's Supper with, with the disciples, he, he could have gone to a number of things to remember. Remember that I'm God, or remember that I'm, I was fully man, or, or remember that the promise of the Holy Spirit was coming. No, you know what he asked them to remember? He says, remember my death, burial, and resurrection. Remember that. Because in that, you'll realize that life comes through that. You want life? Then be baptized into my death, burial, and resurrection. You want life? It comes through Jesus. It comes through me. And so we're going to take communion here in a second. And uh, before he even institutes the Lord's Supper, Jesus tips his hat. He kind of tells the disciples what he's going to do. And in fact, he tells a big crowd what's expected of him. In John chapter 6, he says this. He says, truly, truly. Remember I told you last week that means that what I'm about to say is 100% true. That's how he's saying that. Amen, amen. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's saying, look, you're going to have to eat my flesh. You're going to you're gonna have to partake of my body. And if you don't, there will be no life in you. There'll be no life in you. He goes on and says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides or remains in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. The Father is life. I am life. You want to live an eternal life, then, then take from me. Now, this we get this text right after he's talking about the manna and all that other stuff. That's why he makes the, the combination there about the bread of life. But either way, we see people run from Jesus. This is too hard. This is a hard truth. This is weird. I'm out. What is he doing? He's showing that ultimately for him as God, who is one with God, needs to go to the cross to have his body broken and his blood spilled to be that sacrifice that can put all of us in right standing with God. 
And that's what, this is what communion is. And so we're going to take communion together and partake in this. Why? Because we're told to do this in remembrance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, to not forget, to not have amnesia about what Jesus has done for us. Communion is a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a moment for us believers to step before God and say, I remember what you did for me, Jesus. I remember what you did for me. And I, and I want to I wanna not only submit to you as my Savior, but that you are my King because you are God. You're not just a good man that had some divine aspects. You are fully God, and therefore you are King, Commander, Leader of my life, and I submit myself to you, and I want to walk with you. If you are here today and you have unsettled bitterness in your heart, with another believer. If you, have, if you have unforgiven or anything that you are not forgiving someone or you know your, your brother has something against you, then I would encourage you to not partake. First, go be reconciled and then come. If you're sitting there and you hear that and you're like, oh man, like I, I messed up, I sinned. Well, here's the most beautiful thing about Jesus. Confess your sins to him and come to the table. It doesn't say hold back. He doesn't say you have to do the, here, wait, wait till the sacrificial system. No, no, no. That sacrifice is once and for all. It's in Jesus Christ. His grace is lavished on us. It's being poured out on us over and over. It's more than enough. But that's what we proclaim. We proclaim that Jesus' body, which was fully man, even though it somehow encapsulated fully God, Jesus, for the first time, felt aging. Did you ever think about that? He put on flesh and for the first time had to feel what it meant for a body to age. That Jesus went to the cross so that we could stand in forgiveness before God, righteous, clothed in his righteousness. This is what communion is. And Jesus said on the night with the disciples, just after John was resting his head in the chest of God, he says, Jesus took the bread and he, after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And all of his children partook of it because we want the life that comes from his body. In the same way, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And Jesus poured it out and said, this is my blood. My, your sins are forgiven. Partake. You must drink of my blood to experience my life. The life that is in me, that is in the Father, is now in you. Let us drink. If you don't really know who Jesus is, then you won't really understand or appreciate what he does for you. If you lose sight of Jesus as God, then all of your actions are going to come to a point, like we said last week, where you're going to feel like you have to keep earning it and going because it just wasn't enough. It wasn't a once and for all. Let me pray. The band's going to come up and we will worship. If you need prayer, if you're here today and you're like, I don't know if I believe this about Jesus or I thought I believed it, but I'm struggling... We have people available in the prayer room to share that with you. If you're here today and you're like, man, for the first time, I just want to declare that Jesus is my king. Let us celebrate with you. Come talk to us at the prayer room. And pray, Heavenly Father, we thank you for, we thank you for uh, sending God to incarnate, to live in flesh as Jesus. 
God, we thank you that all revelation that we may have had through the prophets beforehand now comes clearly through the person of Jesus Christ. God, for, for the, the many ways that you continue to show us that you are God, I, think, I can't think of any other time better than now to be reminded that you are God, you are good, you are sovereign, you are all-powerful, you are all-knowing. God, you know every individual here, whether they're grieving a loss or they're grieving um, the loss of, of, a, of home or they're just feeling the loss of being isolated. God, you know where they are. And you didn't just sit in your throne and say, deal with it. Instead, you left your throne. You came down. You took on Jesus and walked with us. You could, you could be a high priest that could be compassionate about everything we experience. And so, God, I pray that you'd overwhelm our hearts with your goodness, with your love. I thank you for the cross and, this, and, and, this, and the sacrifice that was made so that I could stand in your throne room righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus free from my flesh and my burden of carrying my own weights. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God 